0: Okay. All right, let's go to our scripture that can be found uh, on the screen. And this uh, first, uh, first Thessalonians, and uh, the sermon is on 1 Thessalonians three eleven through 13. But I'm actually going to start reading at 9. You may not have that up there, but I'm going to start and you guys jump in whenever we have it. This is Paul praying uh, with thanksgiving uh, for the Thessalonians. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is God's word. I want to talk a little bit about maturity and growth. How is it that we mature and grow? For life is all about maturing, isn't it? We understand this from looking at the seasons. Uh, We're in spring heading into summer as we look and see the flora and fauna as, uh, as life begins again and trees and flowers and plants and, and crops mature. We look at it as we, uh, as we see maturity, as we see our children, as they continue to grow before our eyes, whether uh, cognitively, uh, emotionally, certainly physically. I, I've, always looked, uh, I've not always looked up to my children, but I certainly do now, uh, for they tower above me in a menacing sort of fashion sometimes. Hopefully we're growing in wisdom as well as we learn more and more about life, about who we are, about how we are to live in life. But we have to ask the question, how do we grow spiritually? For the Bible surely wants us to grow in our faith. In our tradition, in the PCA, we certainly have a place, a high value on knowledge. One who knows and studies the scriptures, Uh, And and knowing and knowledge of the scriptures is certainly important. We see that clearly in the life of Jesus. And yet one can know the scriptures well and still be empty in their heart. I think it was Joseph Stalin, actually, who was a seminary graduate who had a verse on his desk. No, it's got to be more than that. And if we look at this passage, particularly in verse 13, I think we see... What's going on here? That God wants us to, est- our hearts to be established blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. What God is after in our lives is holiness, a blamelessness, if you can, that comes through holiness. But what does it mean to be holy? Verse 12 helps us to understand that. It says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and our Father at his coming. In other words, it's our love that we have for one another and our love for those who are not like us that is the pinnacle of maturity in the Christian faith, that is equated with blamelessness in holiness. I want to suggest to you that this life is a classroom. It's a journey in which God is teaching us how to love. And this class is in session. And we must learn the lesson of how to love while we walk this earth for a brief period of time. For love is the goal of what he has made us to be. And so, how do we learn to love? I want to cover three specific points in this short passage of three verses. Number one, we must learn to pay the price of love. We must pay the price of love if we want to love. Number two, we must exercise the privilege of love. For it is a privilege, but it must be exercised. And finally, We get to experience the power of love. When we pay the price and when we exercise the privilege, we experience the power of love. For love is the goal of what God has made us to be. Let's begin with point number one, the price of love. Paul prays in verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Notice that this is a prayer, a prayer that Paul is praying. And he's praying that God would direct Paul and the other and his disciples with him to the Thessalonians. He is separated from them from a geographic distance. And indeed, he has wanted to come to them for some time. 1 Thessalonians 2.18 has said, said, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. And so Paul has come to the end of himself, he realizes that I cannot get there, I cannot get to love these people without first submitting my calendar to the Lord. In other words, God, this is my prayer, this is my desire, but you have to make it happen because I've tried again and again and I can't seem to do it. What Paul is in effect saying is that God sees what we do not see, that God knows what we do not know, And that his wisdom is superior to our own. And so in order to love others, he has to start with prayer first. He has to start with prayer and he has to submit his calendar to the Lord. Lord, what do you want me to do? When do you want me to do it? And how do you want me to do it? In verse 10, he says, and we pray Most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul has been praying not just once, but earnestly, notice, night and day to be able to see them face to face. In order to do what? To supply what is lacking in your faith. Now I find that kind of strange. I mean, isn't it Jesus who supplies what is lacking in a person's faith? The answer, of course, is yes. But often the way in which he does it is through people. In other words, Paul has a role to play in the lives of these Thessalonians. He knows it, he senses it, that he can be a part of helping them grow in Jesus Christ. But he must also submit not only his calendar to the Lord, but his desires to the Lord. God, this is what I want to do. This is the role I want to play in these people's lives. But you have to make it happen. For without you, I can't. In other words, here's what I want. What is it that you want? We are an instrument that God uses in the lives of other people. But he is the surgeon. Now that may be a bit of a surprise that God would use you to supply what is lacking in someone else's faith. You may say, what is it that I have to give? I'm only a scalpel. Well, that's very true. You're just an instrument. A scalpel without the hand of the surgeon is a useless instrument. But in the hands of an equipped uh, and competent surgeon, it can perform wonders. It can bring life uh, instead and, and push off death. Just the point I'm trying to make is that the Lord knows best. And the way that we start to pay the price of love is to simply say, teach me how to love. Teach me how to love this person. Here's my will. Here's my desires. Paul is not demanding of the Lord, but he's asking. Much like Jesus in the garden, remember? Oh Lord, Father, if you will, you know, take this cup from me, but not as I will. I will but you will. To pay the price of love, if we want to learn to love, it starts with prayer. It starts with submitting this person to the Lord and saying, how can I love this person the best? I don't know how to do it. I don't have the power to do it, but I want to do it. So God, help me. And God will fill in the gaps and the holes. What do they need, these Thessalonians? Well, they didn't need Paul in the beginning, did they? Not in the beginning, beginning, but Paul was delayed from coming to them. For a while, they didn't need Paul. See, hopefully you've learned this by now, that there is one God and you are not him. But you're a part of what God is doing. Sometimes we, we pick up the burden and, and put it all on our shoulders for this other person, and it's just too heavy. Only God can carry the weight of another person's soul. But we have a role and a responsibility to play, don't we? In each other's lives. And so we pray. Because love cares. Love cares. And what this passage is telling us is that we are to look outside of ourselves to someone else's well-being, starting with those in the church and extending out into the world. Christianity is not a private exercise, a private relationship simply between me and God. It's something I do in my private little chamber and then I go on with my life. No, God is doing something in us and wants to do something through us into the world. It's Philippians 2.3 that says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. I believe that is an impossible thing to do aside from the grace and the power of Jesus Christ because I am full of myself. 1 Thessalonians 3.10 says, And we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. The way that Paul wants to love these Thessalonians most of all is to help them grow in Christ. And that is the highest form of love, by the way. We can care for the physical needs of others, and we have to do that, and we should do that. We can care for the emotional needs of others, and we have to and should. But if all of that is is part of our desire for them to grow in Christ, then that is the highest form of love. And so what Paul is doing and what we must also do is to take responsibility for one another's growth in Jesus Christ. Am I my brother's keeper? And the, the answer is yes. Love cares and love shares. But Paul wants more than anything is to go to be with these Thessalonians so he can share his life with them. Isn't that what Jesus Christ did for us, Jesus came into the world, right? Though he was the Son of God enthroned in heaven. He became poor, a little baby, born to a poor family, and entered into this world that he might know us and that we might know him. For the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus said something unbelievable to his He said, I no longer call you followers, but I call you friends. For I have made known to the Father why I came and what He has told me. That the Son of God would consider us friends of His, tells us miles about who Jesus Christ is and what He thinks of us. I think one of the most horrible things about this whole COVID crisis is what it's done in terms of isolating people from one another. And I talk with people in the church on the phone, and I particularly think of some of our older folks who are isolated away, and and for good reason. I mean, there's there's certainly health ramifications of this. There's a built-in tendency of us, because of the fall, to isolate from one another. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did right away, that they hid themselves from one another? But we can't share... Love can't share without coming close. Because love is not transactional. Love is relational. I don't know if you're familiar uh, with what is called in military uh, circles the Pueblo Incident. And it's referring to the USS Pueblo that was captured in 1968 by the North Koreans. It was a, a spy ship and had 82 different people on it. And it was captured. And the the sailors were thrown into this brutal captivity. And in one particular instance, uh, 13 of the men were required while they were in captivity to sit in this rigid manner around a table for hours. And after several hours, the door was violently flung open. And a North Korean guard brutally beat the man in the first chair with the butt of his rifle. The next day, as each man sat at his assigned place, again the door was thrown open and the man in the first chair was brutally beaten. On the third day, it happened again to the same man. Knowing the man could not survive, on the fourth day, another young sailor took his place. When the door was flung open, the guard automatically beat the new victim senseless. For weeks, each day, a new man stepped forward to sit in that horrible chair knowing full well what would happen. And at last, the guards gave up in exasperation. They were unable to beat that kind of sacrificial love. Love cares and love shares. Love comes near. And what the Bible is saying, and what God is saying to you and me, is to make a decision. Oh God, make me an instrument of love. To do so, I must reorient my priorities. I must take my calendar and I must submit it to the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Are you too busy to be used by the Lord in loving other people? Things have to change. There are many things that we own and put on our plate and say that we're responsible for. But one of those things that we cannot throw off our plate is the Bible's admonition that we are to care and be responsible for one another's spiritual growth. This isn't just the role of the pastor. It's the role of each one of us working together, sometimes to sit in that chair if we need to, in order to help that person when they're injured or hurt. We have to submit our calendar. We have to submit our desires to the Lord. And you have to love the one you're with. God has brought us together. And so in the midst of this COVID crisis, we must come close, not move further away. Maybe that is having to use the phone with some of our older folks. But by God, let us do so. Let us pick up the phone and call. Inundate people. How are you? I just want you to know that I'm thinking about you. How's your soul today? I'm just thinking about you. How can I pray for you? Means getting together with people for lunch, to check in with one another, to pray for one another. Means maybe sticking around in church a little bit longer so that you can hear how people are really doing. Each of us, we put up a facade. Everybody's doing fine at the first sentence, aren't they? Have to dig a little bit deeper. You must be willing to pay the price of love because we were meant to love. This brings me to my second point, that we get to exercise the privilege of love. Verse 12 says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Notice that Paul is praying for the church at Thessalonica. He's praying for the whole church that they would increase and abound in love. And you know what that tells me? It tells me we never arrive. We never get there. We can always grow in learning how to love one another. This just isn't an isolated verse. It's all over the New Testament. Jesus said, a new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What shows the world that we truly have something special, that God truly is, that Jesus truly is the Messiah and the Savior, is the amount of love that we have for one another. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. The Bible actually has four different words, Greek words in the New Testament that refer to love. And one of those uh, words is phileos, which is literally brotherly love. It's only used for the love that is supposed to be between biological family members. And yet it is used to talk about the love that is between people who are in the church. What that means is you have brothers and sisters. There's no such thing as an only child in the kingdom of God. Look around you. These are your brothers and sisters and sisters, literally. And I am my brother's keeper and my sister's keeper. Notice it says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. In other words, where it starts is it starts in the church. The church is the laboratory where we learn to love. The church is the laboratory in which we learn to to take on the responsibility not only for my spiritual health but for the spiritual health of others. All too often it's easy to come to church thinking I'm just focusing on one thing which is my spiritual health. But when you focus not only on your spiritual growth and health but on others, something magical happens. As you obey the scriptures, God is taking care of both of those things. I don't know if you um, uh, read Dante's Inferno. I I often, when I'm having trouble sleeping, as I venture through the various circles of hell of Dante's Inferno, uh, but there's one circle of hell where you have a bunch of people seated around a table, and each of them have food in front of them. But the only problem is taped to their hand is a spoon, and the spoon is too long for them to go ahead and be able to get the food that is right in front of them. Now, of course, you're a very wise group of people. There would be a problem, there there would be a way to solve this problem, which would be if you just fed each other, right? Everyone would be fed. But because there's a selfishness in this circle of hell, everybody starves because the food's right in front of them and they can't eat it. How different from those 13 people around the table of the USS Pueblo, right? Because love cares, Love shares, and love also bears. The church is really quite an amazing thing. You're thrust into a group of people from different walks of life, with different stories, different classes, all sorts of different. But God brings us together. And the word that's used here is not phileos, but it's agape, which is divine love. We are to overflow with love for one another of an agape sort, a sacrificial love as we give and give for one another. Because love cares, love shares, and it also bears. When we put a bunch of sinners in a room, there are going to be challenges and problems. There's going to be grit, if you will, between us. But it's how we deal with it. It is the glory of man to overlook an offense, isn't it? Sometimes we just have to get in a room and we have to work it out. May your love abound and overflow for one another and for all, it says. As this love that we have because of the grace of Jesus Christ is to extend not only to the church, but from the church to the world. John 3.16 said it best, did it not? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten Son. Jesus Christ was sent and willingly came into a screwed up world. And he loved people. And for that, some of them hated him and nailed him to a cross. The world hasn't changed, by the way. It's just as messed up. Although more and more name the name of Jesus Christ. It's just as messed up. This is the world that we come into. So do we love the world as well? Or do we detest the world? Or at least a section of the population of the world because they don't think like you. They don't look like you. They don't believe like you. Are we like the world, which says love those who are like you and hate those who are not like you? It goes on in John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Do you and I have the same attitude toward the world? In that vein, I want you to examine what are the messages that I'm sending out? I mean, look at my social media account. We no longer live in a word-of-mouth society. Very rarely it's communicating over the picket fence. Though there's no reason why we shouldn't do that. I was heartened. One of my sons came to me and said, uh, in talking with his friends, that we're being challenged, that if the Bible really says love their neighbor, why am I driving right by the person who is right next to me to go love somebody else? Not that we shouldn't do that, but what about my neighbor? The way that we communicate, the message that we send are tweets and and posts and so on. So what is my social media account saying? I don't like you because of what you believe. I don't like you because of what you stand for. Jesus didn't say, like the world. He said, love the world. Agape. See, here's the reality, my friends. They listen to everything you say. Are you the reason that people may not be coming to church? Because they know who you are and what you're about. And they see what you say. I don't know if you've read the book, Secret Life of an Unlikely Convert, which was Rosaria Butterfield's book. Rosaria was a tenured professor of lesbian studies Syracuse University and an active practicing lesbian herself and and, uh, I love the title The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert she shares a little bit about the message that she heard being communicated to her which was some of her just interpretation and frankly was some of the way that the message was being sent as it was meant to be sent and she wanted nothing to do with Jesus Christ and Christianity But there was a couple, a pastor and his wife, who reached out, who overflowed with love for her, who brought her into their home to have lunch and to listen. Not to browbeat her or even invite her to church. She knew how to get to their church, but just to love this woman and through their love for her she came to faith. This is a strong Christian. Actually ended up marrying a pastor herself uh, and has a fantastic uh, ministry. This passage is telling us let your love overflow and abound. Oh Lord, help me. Starts with us praying for a heart of love. I don't know if you've ever taken a bucket And you start filling it with water and you forget about it for a little bit. And that water begins to do what? Begins to overflow again and again and again, reaching and touching everything around it. But once you turn off that spigot, what happens? The overflow stops. Pretty soon, if you don't turn on the water again, it actually will begin to evaporate as the sun's heat and its rays come down upon it see we can't love like this without the grace of Jesus Christ we don't have anything to give without his love and his grace and so we must run to the cross and hold on to the cross every day what is it you think about me again God did you really get up on a cross and die for me Jesus did you really love me that much even when I sin are you still thrilled with me because you've paid the price on the cross. And any sorrow that you have is simply because I'm not experiencing the love that you have for me. As you grow in grace every day, what will happen is that love will pour out. Take your love and give it to those around you, starting in this church and then in the outside world, as you practice small acts of surprising love because love is the sign that points to Jesus I close with my final point that we get to experience the power of love verse 13 says so that he may establish your hearts in other words as your love overflows and abounds for one another let your love overflow and abound so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Is this verse saying that it's our love for one another that establishes our salvation? Uh, In other words, it's our actions that establish our salvation. Obviously not. Obviously not. We have to read the entire book of 1 Thessalonians. It's the grace of Jesus Christ and his love on the cross that establishes our salvation. But when we love like this, it says that it uh, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. This has to do with your heart. See, you can have an intellectual conviction that Jesus Christ loves you, and that he died for you, and that he'll never leave you or forsake you. But that's very different from a moral conviction. See, I know that that chair is strong enough, or at least I have faith. That that if I stood on that chair, that it will hold my weight. But it's a totally different thing to actually go and stand on the chair. Then I know it more than simply intellectually. I know it at the core of my being, of who I am. And when you choose to live a life of love, when you... Choose to let God's love overflow as you direct it like a water course to the people around you. There is a moral conviction that builds in your heart that I, yes, too, am a child of God. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 said, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. It goes on in 1 John 4, 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His life, excuse me, and His love is made complete in us. There is nothing more precious and rare in the world than love right now. It's the rarest. The rarer something is, the more valuable it is. That's why palladium is twice the price of platinum. It's amazing the things that I actually know off the top of my head. But there never has been a greater need for the church than to love outside of ourselves. Am I right? We can complain with all the problems of the world. We can retreat from them in disgust and disdain. Or we can embrace the world like Jesus did, in the manner that Jesus did. This could be our finest hour as a church. Because in a world that seems to be embroiled in hatred, the light shines brightest in the darkness. When you get to the end of your life, and I'll conclude with this thought, and some of you are closer than others, and I'm not necessarily speaking of older people, Nobody knows the day or night when your life will be demanded of you, right? What are the accomplishments that you want to have as you look back upon your life? I was a good businessman or businesswoman. It's important. I accomplished this or that. I did this or that. Or I learned to love people. I love those around me. My family, my friends, my church, and people who aren't like me, but just happen to be in my circle. My oldest son's life was demanded of him uh, when he was just 17 years old. But somehow he'd already learned the lesson. On the back of his book, I love the quote, I don't want to be known as someone of great faith or someone who prays great prayers. I want to be known as someone who loves. Guys, class is in session. It's right now. Frankly, it's test time. We need each other in the midst of this crisis. We need to love one another. And we need the grace of Jesus Christ to overflow in our lives to a world in need. Will we answer the call I believe the answer is yes. By God's grace, I hope I will. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you that your love overflowed for us from heaven all the way across the vast reaches of the cosmos into our world through Jesus Christ. And that your grace and your love overflowed and took my stony heart and made it alive. God, give us a a sense of responsibility for one another, that we are the instrument that you want to use to supply to help build one another up. Help us to be our brother and our sister's keeper and help us to love the world, not to disdain it, not to retreat from it, but to embrace people, not necessarily what they believe, but rather to bring the good news of Jesus Christ into the world, because that is what the world needs. Indeed, it is the only hope of the world. Teach us how to love. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.